Murder in the North, Episode 3. In Love, Engaged, Gone. In Love, Engaged, Gone. Those words seem to sum up Linda Chen's final months. Her story turns from love through to tragedy and ends in horror with her murderer escaping prosecution. When a woman is murdered, investigators often start by focusing their attention on the victim's partner. Nearly half of all women whose lives are taken are killed by their significant other. But statistics or suspicions alone are not enough to put somebody behind bars. What is needed is evidence. Where was the crime committed? How and when? The answers to these questions are crucial in identifying the perpetrator. Courts aren't interested in what is merely believed, but in what can be proved. In large part, they'd rather let ten guilty people go free than falsely imprison one innocent person. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Anna Nilika and Barbara Gierhoff Nilholm, and told by me, Jenna Sharp. The officer at the police station in Folon, a small town north of Stockholm, isn't very forthcoming when Mats Alm calls to report his fiancée Linda missing. It's Sunday, the 2nd of August, 2009. The previous evening, Linda had gone into town to meet friends, but Mats hasn't heard from her since. It doesn't sound like a matter for the police. Linda is a 32-year-old woman, and there are countless reasons why she might have decided not to go home. As the officer explains, more time has to pass without a sign of life before the police will consider Linda a missing person. If Mats is really that concerned... He could always phone the local hospitals to ask if she's been admitted anywhere. In the unlikely event that Linda doesn't turn up in the foreseeable future, Mats is told that he can contact the police again. Every year, thousands of people walk out of their homes, leaving their loved ones feeling distraught. Most of them turn up again at some point. Memory lapses, drunken escapades, burnout, arguments secret affairs or cold feet ahead of a wedding, there are plenty of reasons why people momentarily disappear. Mats and Linda are about to get married, in a week's time to be precise. The wedding preparations have been in full swing for a year. Fifty-seven handwritten invitations have been sent out to guests, and Mats has already started to wear his wedding ring. The inscription inside the ring reads, Now and forever. Mats and Linda had known each other for just a few months before he decided to propose in May the previous year. 
Both have been married before, and Linda has a son who lives with his father. Linda's second marriage failed, as did her first one, and she just can't seem to find the stability and security she so craves. Linda and her brother spent seven years in an orphanage in the Philippines before they moved to Sweden as so-called quota refugees when Linda was 15. Her Chinese mother tried to escape China's one-child policy, but she was caught by the police and the family were broken up and Linda separated from her mother. Linda and her little brother have been on their own ever since. Eventually, they end up in a children's home in Oskarsham, in the Swedish province of Smaland. They're taken under the wing of foster mother Eino Johansson, who recognises Linda's determination to build a normal life in spite of her difficult start in Sweden. Those tough beginnings have shaped Linda's personality. She has a strong sense of justice as well as a volatile character. It's a combination that can spell the end of friendships and relationships before they've even had a chance to blossom. For one thing, Linda is fighting a deep-rooted insecurity that makes it hard for her to sleep on her own. She often needs warmth and affirmation from other people, an aspect of her personality that could make her vulnerable to being taken advantage of by men of questionable character. But by the time Linda and Matt's meet on a dating site in March 2008, she seems to have come into her own in some ways. She now lives in the center of the small town of Folan, where she works in a Chinese-Vietnamese restaurant and gets to talk to customers and colleagues in her mother tongue every day. As well as Mandarin, she can also draw on her knowledge of Swedish, Vietnamese, Filipino and English. Soon after meeting, Mats moves in with Linda, and a few months later, he asks her to marry him. Everything happened just as quickly the first time Mats got married. That time, he'd met a Peruvian woman online and travelled to Peru to meet her, very shortly after the initial contact. And when she came to Sweden to see him, he'd proposed before they'd even left the airport. That marriage lasted four years, until he left his wife to move in with another woman. Fast forward in time, and Mats is now getting ready to marry Linda. The restaurant where Mats and Linda are determined to have the reception is fully booked for months, so they pick the 8th of August as their wedding date. They have romantic wedding photos taken in China. These show Linda seated on a big upholstered chair in a bridal gown with a veil and a sparkling tiara in her hair. Tall, blonde Mats is standing right behind her, wearing a tuxedo and a black bow tie. Now there's only a week to go until the wedding, and Linda has gone missing. A few hours after Mats is first brushed off by the police, he picks up the phone again. Linda still hasn't come home, and she hasn't turned up for work either. He's tried calling and calling, and he sent many messages but she's not answering her phone or replying to his texts. He doesn't know where Linda was on Saturday evening or with whom, which is why he doesn't know who else to contact. The police must do something, he says. They must. Mats contacts the police in Folan a third time, and frustration turns to despair. 
It's now Monday, and Linda has been untraceable since Saturday. The fact that a police officer on duty isn't even aware that a woman has gone missing in the area makes him furious. Mads tries to look for Linda off his own bat, helped by her friends and relatives who've come over from Smaland. But none of them know how to go about it or even where to start. So, the next day, Mats turns to the station at Furlan again, together with Linda's younger brother. This time, he doesn't phone, but he shows up in person to urge them to open an investigation into the disappearance. Linda has now been gone for three whole days. This marks the first time that Mats is formally interviewed by the police, but his statement doesn't give them much to go on. On Saturday, Linda worked the afternoon shift at the restaurant, so she was at work from 11 till 4. When she got home, she had a bath, and then she and Matt's went to the local supermarket to get groceries. Matt's parents were coming over the next day, so they bought steaks to cook on the barbecue. Later that evening, Linda went into town to see friends, Matt's explains, but he doesn't know who these friends were or where they were going to meet. There's been no word from her since. The police now launch the search for Linda Chen. They publish a photo taken during a trip to China with the following description. 32-year-old female, 4 foot 8, approximately 110 pounds, ethnicity Chinese. According to Mats, Linda was dressed head to toe in white. She was wearing a white dress with white leggings and white heels, and she was also carrying a white handbag. At home in Smaland, news of Linda's disappearance comes as a complete shock to her foster mother, Aino Johansson, who spots the missing persons notice in the paper. Still reeling, Aino tries to get hold of Mats. Why didn't he get in touch with her straight away? How come he's already spoken to several journalists while Aino, Linda's own stepmother, was still in the dark? She's all the more astonished when she finally gets hold of Mats on the phone. She was expecting Mats to be distraught and despondent, but he seems pleasantly surprised to hear from Aino. He doesn't sound particularly worried or upset. The police in Folan now attempt to piece together Linda's final hours. They interview relatives, friends and colleagues and start gathering digital evidence. A security camera at the supermarket where Mats and Linda bought their steaks show the couple leaving together at 4.38pm Saturday afternoon. Footage shows a smiling Linda exiting the store, arm in arm with her fiancé, who's so much taller that she barely reaches up to his shoulder. She's wearing a white summer dress, white leggings, and a pair of flat brown sandals. Her black hair is up in a bun, and she has a string of white pearls round her neck. According to the statement Mats gives, she's wearing the exact same outfit later that evening, except for a change of shoes. Aino thinks that's odd. She's known Linda since she was a teenager, and Linda has always been very particular about her appearance. She'd never have gone for a night on the town without getting changed. Her foster mother is convinced of it. Aino is also astonished to hear that, again, as per Matt's statement, Linda swapped her sandals for the bridal shoes she'd chosen carefully for the wedding. 
Neither the neighbours nor any other witnesses come forward with information that the police can use in their hunt for Linda. Nobody has seen her. So, for the time being, Matt's statement is all the investigative team has to go on. For example, Matt's claims that after he and Linda came back from the supermarket on Saturday afternoon, they went for a drive. They wanted to take care of some last-minute wedding preparations, Matt's explains, which is why they made their way to Torsang to check out the steamboat cruise. They also drove by the restaurant where the wedding reception was due to take place, but unfortunately it was closed. As soon as the investigation into Linda Chen's disappearance is stepped up a gear, some facts come to light that don't square up with Matt's account. Matt's mobile phone data reveals that he sent a text message to a friend at 8 o'clock on Saturday evening. At that point, he was nearly 20 miles from home and around 6 miles from the aforementioned steamboat in Torsang. When they pull the picture data from Linda's digital camera, investigators learned that she photographed the steamboat two days before that fateful Saturday. They then find out that the restaurant they drove past hadn't been closed at all. Far from it. On the evening in question, it was incredibly busy because there was a massive party taking place. And not only that, it turns out that Matt's hadn't made any arrangements at all with the restaurant, even though the reception was only a week away. And unlike Linda, he hadn't booked any annual leave for the upcoming honeymoon. On Saturday, August the 8th, a week after Linda's disappearance, friends and family gather in the church where, on that very day, the couple should have tied the knot. The pastor speaks of hope and lights a candle for Linda. Why would he assume that she's dead? Matt's whispers to Linda's foster mother, Aino, who's sitting beside him in the pew. That's an odd question, she thinks. Everybody is undoubtedly extremely worried about Linda, but the pastor never mentioned death in his sermon. Quite the opposite. Some of Linda's friends raise an eyebrow when Matt's goes for a beer with some old mates that same evening. He seems to be in high spirits by the unexpected way he's behaving. Aside from the security camera footage from the supermarket, the investigative team finds no other trace of Linda. In search of answers, the police start to stitch together a picture of her life prior to the disappearance. They research the couple's finances. They find out that Matt's has run up huge debts and contributes next to nothing to their joint income. Matt's may be paying the bills, but it's Linda who's earning the money to pay those bills. The bank statements list a significant number of transfers from her account to his. As a recently qualified language teacher, Matz has a modest income, which is why Linda has shelved her dream of becoming a nurse for the time being. With her restaurant salary, she's been able to make ends meet for both her and her fiancé. The money question takes centre stage in a video that Linda has recorded. In the video, Matz and Linda are seen at home, with Matz sitting at the dining table. The mood is relaxed and light-hearted, with Linda giggling at Matt's on-camera jokes about having to murder her so he can collect the life insurance they've just taken out. 
he also jokingly brings up Linda's will, declaring that he'd love to change it so he can be her sole beneficiary and he won't have to share the house with her son from a previous marriage after her death. Just before Linda stops recording, he says, Please don't ever die, sweetheart. Linda's friends are puzzled by Matt's claim not to know where and with whom Linda had made plans on Saturday. If anything, Matt's was always extremely interested in Linda's comings and goings, and that included her social life. He could even be a bit controlling, always insisting on picking her up from work. A month passes, and the police haven't made much progress in the hunt for Linda Chen. She hasn't been seen, and no further evidence has come to light. Mads has done several newspaper interviews, and on the 2nd of September, he appears on Efterlust, Sweden's answer to Crime Watch. During the live broadcast, detectives in the studio take calls from viewers who have information about the crimes that are covered. The programme is co-hosted by criminologist and writer Leif Persson, who provides analysis and commentary on each case. During the segment on Linda's disappearance, Mats gets to tell his story. He speaks softly, and his voice breaks from time to time. He shows viewers Linda's wedding dress, a beautiful red gown she bought in China, and ends by talking about the many futile tears he shed since she's gone missing. It sounds as if Mats has given up hope of ever finding Linda alive again. She can't possibly have left of her own free will. Both her passport and credit card were still at home. He hasn't received a ransom note or anything either, so it's unlikely that she was abducted and is being held somewhere. Criminologist Leif Person agrees with Mats. The odds are that something has happened to Linda. In fact, he goes a step further and says, Something bad must have happened. Maybe she was murdered. If that's the case, I have a good idea who the perpetrator is. He goes on to make a very pointed comment by saying that most women who are murdered are killed by their partner. In the days that follow, Person reiterates his suspicions in various newspapers. He believes that Matz's appearance on the show was anything but convincing, and he accuses him of bad acting. Matz shrugs off Leaf Person's accusations. He's got other things to worry about than the theories of some old guy who earns his living telling detective stories on TV. Matz is due to be interviewed by the police again in mid-September, but he fails to appear at the station on the appointed date. Officers go to his home, but he's not there. And when they discover that he failed to show up to work, he's placed on the wanted list. Two days later, on September the 18th, a shirtless and shoeless young man comes running out of the woods near Radvik, some 20 miles north of Furlan. He reaches a cluster of summer houses and stops two startled residents. He yells, Call the police! Then he collapses on the driveway. The man's body is burnt in places. His hair is singed and he has visible injuries to his wrists. The police arrive to find the man lying in the recovery position, covered by a blanket. He's sobbing heavily 
and so incoherent that officers struggle to make head or tail of anything he says. They soon discover that the man is none other than Mats Olm. In between the sobbing and sniffing, he manages to say that he's found his missing fiancée and that she's dead. It takes a while before the police officers can make sense of what Mats is saying. He explains that he woke up in the woods with his clothes on fire. Lying next to him was Linda's corpse, covered in a swarm of flies. She was buried under leaves and branches, but there was no doubt in his mind it was Linda. Detectives search the woods with dogs. After a while, they come to an isolated spot not far from a red cabin. There are traces of a small fire. Behind a big rock, barely visible beneath a big pile of leaves and cut-off branches, one of the dog handlers spots a naked foot. The human remains have been in the woods for some time and are too badly decomposed to be immediately identified as Linda Chen. But the woman's clothing, a white dress and white leggings, match the description of the outfit Linda wore on the day she went missing. Mats is arrested on suspicion of murdering his fiancée, but first he's taken to hospital to be treated for his injuries. Following his discharge from hospital the next day, he's briefly admitted to a psychiatric ward for a nervous breakdown, but a few hours later he appears in court and is remanded in custody. Over the course of the weekend, coroners try to identify the dead woman in the woods and determine the cause of death. Police scour the area where the body was found. They discover a pair of men's gloves and the remnants of a fire. Burnt wood, scorched grass and charred pieces of fabric. The scene carries all the hallmarks of someone's failed attempt at covering their tracks. Four days after an injured and panicking Mats was found running out of the woods, he is formally charged with the murder of his fiancée. His custody is extended. Mats maintains his innocence, claiming that he himself is the victim in this bizarre case. He was at home in the evening when he heard a knock on the door. When he went to answer it, two Chinese men threatened him with a knife, so he had no choice but to let them in. The men made him swallow two white pills and then waited until he lost consciousness. When he came to, he was tied up in the boot of a car. The men had given him a cup to urinate in. They fed him strips of beef and deep-fried prawns that tasted stale. He must have lost consciousness again after that, Matt says, because the next time he woke up, he was lying in the forest with his clothes on fire. The investigators decide to enact a reconstruction of Matt's story, asking him to assist to give them a better understanding of his gruesome account. The two police officers take on the roles of the Chinese kidnappers, while Matt's has to reenact proceedings. The whole thing is captured on video. Matt's really throws himself into it. He guides the two actors through the reconstruction while he recreates his own actions. Suddenly, 
He's no longer the confused and terrified young man running out of the woods. Nor is he the inconsolable mourning groom, clutching his fiancée's wedding gown on national television and talking about the many futile tears he shed. Although he has been formally charged with Linda's murder and concealment of her body in the woods, he seems perfectly at ease. He jokes with the police officers while he does a detailed reenactment of how he stumbled across his loved one's lifeless body. Detectives sift through all the elements of his statement, but fail to find evidence to corroborate his claims. For example, no traces of sedatives are found in his blood. Matz denies any knowledge of the shoes that were discovered near the remains of the fire. He says he was in his socks when the two Chinese men ambushed him. And he regained consciousness in the woods without shoes, he alleges. But forensic investigation reveals that the shoes belong to Matz. The serious crime unit's theory is that Matz killed Linda in an unknown location, possibly after keeping her imprisoned for a while. He's thought to have then taken her body to the woods, where she was eventually found, before returning to the site to destroy evidence and cover his tracks. And yet, many questions remain unanswered. The post-mortem examination of Linda's remains fails to determine how she died, nor can a crime scene be established. But then, the police receive some fresh clues, and they come from an unexpected source. Matz's parents find a laptop bag in their house, hidden in a cupboard in the boiler room. Inside the bag are a digital camera, an SD card, some money, and a necklace, with a ring that Matz used to wear on his finger. There's also a farewell letter. Hello, Mum. Hello, Dad. If you're reading this, it means that something has happened to me. The people who are responsible for Linda's disappearance have probably disposed of me as well. I think I'm close to uncovering the truth. That's why I want to give you a few important items for safekeeping. If things pan out differently, I'll come and collect them again later. I need the computer for when I spend weekends with you. I love you with all my heart, as I do my sisters, grandmother, and everyone else, of course. Mats. The digital camera in the bag is found to contain photos of Mats in Stockholm, dated the 16th of September. It's the day he claims he was kidnapped from his house in Folan. He denies that it's him in the photos. It's a man who looks a lot like him, true, but he wasn't in Stockholm at that time. He was at home, until two strangers took him against his will. Nearly six months pass before the trial against Mats gets underway. The charges against him are manslaughter and desecration of a body. Right up to the last moment, the exact cause of Linda's death remains difficult to pinpoint with any accuracy, and so the Crown Prosecution Service puts forward a range of scenarios during the trial. These different scenarios all hold Mats responsible for Linda's death. Premeditated murder is one of the possibilities. Another is manslaughter, perhaps after an argument that escalated with fatal consequences. Nor can it be ruled out that Linda died as a result of an accident. The public prosecutor can't say with any certainty how it happened. But one thing seems to be clear to them, 
Mats is guilty of Linda's death. The trial against Mats takes place at Folan District Court in March 2010. His blonde hair has grown longer, and he's put on a bit of weight in prison. But his answers to the court's questions haven't changed. He still strongly denies any involvement in Linda's death. Two months later, the court delivers its verdict. Mats is found guilty, but only of desecration of a body. The court rules that the burden of proof hasn't been met, neither for murder or manslaughter, nor for an accident. The court states that somebody can't be convicted when it remains unclear where or how a crime was committed. The judge is convinced that Mats knows a great deal more than he lets on, and yet he can only be convicted for dumping and setting fire to Linda's corpse. He's acquitted of the other charges, the actual murder of his fiancée. When behavioural experts declare Mats to be of sound mind, he's sentenced to 18 months in prison. The prosecutor decides not to appeal. Mats and his lawyer also accept the verdict. Even so, he applies for a reduction of the sentence on the basis of the eight months he spent on remand while accused of murder. The application is rejected. And so, Mats Olm was acquitted of the murder of Linda Chen, despite many people suspecting him to be guilty. After Linda's death, Mats was entitled to her life insurance of one million Swedish kroner, about £80,000. Despite his earlier jokes about collecting the insurance money, he's since decided to hand it over to Linda's son. From Podimo... This is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes, and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.